Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor of Pitchfork. One of the biggest things music fans have been worried about since COVID hit is the absence of live music, and also when it might return. This year, we at Pitchfork had to cancel our annual summer music festival in Chicago and our festivals in Paris and Berlin. So we have a lot invested in the state of live music and probably a little more insight than most. For this episode, we talked to some friends in Chicago to hear about how live music is faring now and what the future might hold. With us is Adam Kreffman, the executive director of Pitchfork's music festivals and events, and Kristen Kaza of No Small Plans Productions. Kristen produces inclusive events like her beloved dance party Slow Mo, which has been celebrating queer culture and community for the past nine years. I think let's just start with what is the state of COVID in Chicago right now? Like, are any venues open? Does anything seem to be on the path to reopening? Well, uh, (laughs) not many venues are open. Yeah. There's a handful that are able to do, I think, up to 50-person capacity. You know, for a lot of venues, uh, opening at that capacity would mean operating at a loss. Right. And I think that also a lot of the venue owners, they're out of respect and care for the well-being of their guests, of their staff, um, Mm -hmm. and trying to be really precautious about that as well. Yeah. So what would usually be happening? Let's imagine a a pre-COVID time, which feels ancient now. Um, But if there was no COVID-19 right now, what would be on the horizon for both of you? Well, this is a very, usually a very busy time of year. There's um, Expo, which is the largest art fair in the Midwest that would be happening around this time and all the corresponding events that are happening for that. And for me personally, Halloween is always a really exciting and big time of year for slow-mo. And we do a show called The Coven Classic, which is an assembly of all women and non-binary and trans musicians that are covering sexy, spooky uh, witchy classics, and we have a bunch of amazing Chicago artists and musicians that come out to to perform for that. Ah, uh, that sounds incredible. It's a lot of fun. Everyone gets dressed up, and you know, we we're thinking about possibly doing a virtual version or interpretation of that, but we'll just have to see. Yeah, and Adam, I think I know what your answer would be since you run Pitchforks Music Festivals. But what would be on deck for you? <laughs> well, September, I mean, we've got the Chicago Festival in the rearview mirror. And then, yeah, we have Paris. Paris is usually uh, first weekend of, of November. I feel like we're just doing an in memoriam. Um, in memoriam. <laughs> I, can, like, I can see the grayscale images yes. of the days gone by uh, with everything that you say. <laughs> 
Yeah, it does feel like we're mourning a lot. Well, let's let's like rewind a little bit to right before this all went down. Kristen, do you remember what the last event was that you planned? Yes, my my memory of the week, the domino effect of what happened in mid-March is pretty wild. I have um, a studio that I co-direct and co-founded called Reunion in a neighborhood in Chicago called Humboldt Park. And it's a sliding scale event space for LGBTQ and BIPOC artists and creatives. And we have a a monthly party in collaboration with Slomo called Queer Comedy. And we have different comics that come out and it's super popular, a lot of fun. It was sold out. And I, I remember that when I was checking people in, we had put some hand sanitizer out just like you know, on mm-hmm. the desk, like we should probably have some hand sanitizer. And this was March 7th mm-hmm. and everyone was, you know, nervous, you know, a little nervously, like pumping the hand sanitizer as they went through, but we still had the sold out show and it was still, um, you know, fine. And I think there was a little bit of hand wringing at the time, but we hadn't had the cases yet. How many ta- people were at the show? We had Just- 75, I think. Okay, okay. No, maybe it was actually closer to 100, if I'm being honest. And it was just this domino effect. So that that event happened on Saturday. It went really well. And then on Tuesday, I had a lot of events and larger scale, 1,000 person plus events scheduled. And so I, I had hired a part-time person on Tuesday to work with me for the season. The next day, I found out about a major event, um, the Flower and Garden Show at Navy Pier being canceled. And just that day, making so many phone calls and canceling and postponing a, a numerous amount of events. The next day, Trump announced um, the travel ban. And then two days later, Pritzker announced uh, that restaurants would be closing. And our monthly party, Slomo, which has been at the Whistler in Logan Square for nine, almost nine years, we decided and made the call to move that event online. And we streamed that online uh, via Instagram and Facebook, which of course is just so common now, but at the time was sort of a really you know, novel idea and ended up having like 5,000 people tune in for that because it was, wow. you know, we thought we were going back to to work a few weeks later. So it was like a slumber party. (laughs) At your last in-person event, um, you mentioned the hand sanitizer. I remember my last show where there weren't masks yet, but it was just a hot room and everyone was sweaty and everyone who was sweaty was like, am I sick? You know, like what is (laughs) happening here? It was the first time I remember a friend asking to taste my drink, and I was like, oh, maybe get your own straw for it, you know. Adam, do you remember when you realized that not only was the pandemic going to change the immediate future of live music, but possibly indefinitely? Yeah, so we announced our lineup in late February, and you know, even then there wasn't really a thought about coronavirus shutting down anything. But about two weeks later, South by Southwest canceled. And I think, you know, most people in the music business would cite that as the moment when it became a really immediate threat. Yeah, I agree with that. And shortly thereafter, Coachella announced postponing to the fall, which was a huge deal. Yeah. But does give you a sense of even then, you know, timeline was, well, okay, maybe this is a few months out. Pitchfork Festival usually takes place in July, third weekend in July. Uh, So among other things, we started looking at possibly pushing back ourselves to September dates. We thought we could probably move most of the lineup based on some initial conversations with agents, but then we couldn't get permits with the city. 
uh, <laughs> anything related to mass gatherings was on hold with the city. So without permits, we were just sort of stuck in July. Right. Um, and that to us spelled cancellation. Mm. But the issue there is you can't just cancel. There's artist contracts that we're bound to. And, you know, when we kind of realized we were going to have to cancel, the, the, the mode is to really try to reduce loss as much as possible because you're going to lose money. And so we've got artist contracts, which are definitely our biggest single cost. And this is where we started to really dig in and try to figure out the force majeure clause. Mm-hmm. This is this is probably the the phrase that got passed around the most in the music industry yes. in the mm-hmm. month of March through June, I yep. would say. So I, I think it Absolutely. is useful to to explain it a little bit further. Right. So the force majeure clause, it means kind of two things have to happen for the force majeure clause to be enforceable. The first is that the occurrence has to be beyond your control. It basically has to be a great force or an act of God or whatever the whatever the the, the term is. Essentially um, a natural disaster. Natural disaster, and certainly COVID qualifies as, as a force majeure event. Mm-hmm. But the second piece is that it has to make the event impossible to produce. It's not risky or unlikely or extra costly, but legitimately impossible. And through, I guess, years of precedent, the only version of that that is enforceable is if a governmental body, the city or the state, uh, tells you you cannot do the festival. Which makes things complicated. When it makes things very complicated. government yeah. and the state government don't necessarily right. agree. And we remember how crazy it was when they were first responding to this and uh, music festivals and events were just not top of the list. And someone did ask Governor Pritzker at one of the early, um, he's the governor of Illinois, at one of the early press conferences he did, someone asked him. What advice would you give to organizers of big summer events, concerts, etc.? Should they plan to proceed, plan on crowd limits? Should they think about canceling? And he said something, you know, completely not binding, because it's he's answering a question in a press conference. He says something like, I think everybody needs to think seriously about uh, canceling uh, large summer events. I just, I, from my perspective today, I do not see how we are going to have large gatherings of people again uh, until we have a vaccine, which is months and months away. Um, I, I would not risk having large groups of people getting together uh, anywhere. And I think that's hard for everybody to hear, but um, that's just a fact. Just, oh, yeah, I remember that. I got interviewed mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, right after he said that. That that had a blowback. <laughs> it had a blowback, and it was also, like, just from, like, a, you know, and, and it's not blaming him because I think like, yeah. his response has been has been generally very good, but it kind of left us in limbo. Like, yeah, right. is this an official ruling? Is this not? Mm-hmm. I think that from our end to Adam and I, spent a lot of hours talking about this mm-hmm. because there was no clear direction from the government or from health officials. We were spending a lot of time internally as a team saying, what do we feel comfortable? Yeah. Right. What are the precautions? What are capacity limits that we feel comfortable about? Basically, how can we make this safe for everyone should it happen in September mm-hmm. at all? And what are our own kind of personal moral ethical metrics for for that as well. Right. And on top of that, what was really weighing on my mind was the hundreds of people who depend on the festival for a job 
and doing everything that we possibly could to salvage that. Right. But as time wore on, uh, and we're really only talking about weeks, although it felt like years at the time, you know, ultimately it became clear to everyone that there just wouldn't be festivals in 2020. And so the way that the whole thing ended, you know, there were no contract clauses invoked or anything like that. Um, the artist teams, you know, realized that summer was going to be a wash. There weren't going to be festivals. Mm -hmm. They wanted to start replanning for fall and spring tours and, and just wanted clarity. So everyone agreed to walk. There were no contract arguments. It was kind of a, a little bit of a spirit of collaboration in an otherwise really dark time. Um, it, it's wild to think back on it and like what a nightmare that really was to live through Yeah, yeah. and to now talk through it again for probably the first time in full at all outside of maybe my wife. Uh, it's just brutal. Yeah. That just, <laughs> I just, I just relived the hell timeline uh, <laughs> of, of March and I guess I early know. April. Um, honestly, I was so impressed with you not to get emotional. I feel like tearing up, but Ugh. it's in retrospect, <laughs> thinking about how insane every element of that was and how emotionally devastating it was yeah. for so many people. Um, very impressed with you, Adam. Thanks. That was, it was indeed terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kristen, I wanted to ask you, I think of the live music space as a place for, you know, spiritual kinship and joy mm -hmm. and catharsis. And it seems like with your events, that's even more so heightened because they provide the safe space yeah. for the queer community. How did you handle that kind of suddenly being taken away? And were there any kind of options that you explored in an attempt to continue keeping that community connected to each other? I appreciate that question. You know, you know, historically, communities on the margins, you know, LGBTQ community, of course, depending on not just, you know, space, but specifically nightlife and music and the dance mm -hmm. floor to be this place of refuge, of celebration and support and community connection. And so that was what was really important to me when we moved Salomo online and we called it Salomo from Homo. People were just so excited <laughs> about it. I mean, that has, it was fun. I didn't know what was going to happen. Woo! Technology is hard. That's something that we've learned. Thanks for everybody who is sticking with us. We can't stream for more than an hour at a time, I think I'm figuring out. So <laughs> I had like five devices. We streamed one of our DJs streamed from my living room and we had a huge, like 40 plants set up and lights. And we did a whole show and we did uh, dance lessons with um, Darling Shear, who is a really well, uh, you know, hugely celebrated performer and choreographer. It was a great looking setup. Yeah, I saw that. It was really beautiful. And I think it gave people a lot of hope. And then it was like, okay, what's next? So we continued mm -hmm. that for a few months, but it, it was not surprising that there was a drop off the next month and that, you know, then that's when people are starting to lose their jobs. We're getting into right. a sort of regularity with this. So it started to shift. How do we sustain the virtual event programming? This hmm. is, this is a personal question from me yeah. because we, Kristen, similarly, you know, we jumped on that, you know, artists record live streaming from Pitchfork's Handles, yeah. a kind of yep. talk show that we live streamed, mm -hmm. um, artists performing from their homes. And you can feel the artist's fatigue also. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can feel how much 
we take for granted that they feed off of us being in the audience and like having that kind of accessibility to us. So how do we sustain this digitally? A big question. (laughs) It is a big question. And we need to imagine how we take some of these tools and approaches with us beyond COVID, beyond what I think happens with, you know, a vaccine or how we move back. I don't think there is a going back. I really don't believe there is a going back. And I I, I say that both from industry <sighs> standpoints. Me out. <laughs> Stressing me out. <laughs> it is on a good day. I will say, you know, like, a, you know, we will see new things develop from this and the things that we've, that have always been important to us, bring it full circle to community connection will be there. I think that's going to be a much bigger part of the future is more intimate gatherings and ways of gathering with people that you know, more things that can be somehow experienced at home. I'm grateful that this, this time has pushed us to use more accessible tools. You know, as an event producer, I think a lot about how to make our spaces accessible for folks across the gender spectrum, for folks of different abilities and disabilities. But I hadn't been thinking about the people at home that maybe can't get to the venue or can't engage in that environment for whatever reason. So I hope to see more streaming options, more captioning, some of the things that I think can reach an audience that maybe we've been ignoring. So I don't want to feel like all is lost and all is doomed. I really think it's important to see what can we take from this with us to build a more sustainable culture around entertainment and hospitality. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. So here's, here's a question, Adam, not to put you on the spot. <laughs> Whenever someone says not to put you on the spot, they're about to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do, you, how do you do a festival in um, a coronavirus? Well, here, it's an easier one. Are outdoor concerts or socially distanced concerts something that you think is a viable option? I think that there are ways to do it. For sure. I think that you've seen a few examples of people setting up a festival style stage in a festival style field, and then they'll kind of like bike rack off. They'll make a grid and and bike racks are like the aluminum waist high Hmm. fences that you'll see around festivals. Mm -hmm. They'll bike rack off a little area and I've paid attention to that stuff, but I haven't really looked into like how do you handle ingress and egress? How do you handle like going to concessions or like using the restroom? Um, which, you know, if you have 25 people, that's not a big deal. But if, you, if you're if you trying to get like a thousand people in a field, that becomes a bigger deal. Uh, right. So I'm very interested in that kind of thing. I, I think it's, it's like a crack of daylight of sorts. Mm-hmm. I always kind of jump right to the business side, but like the issue with it is it's really not cheap to build an outdoor stage yep. like that. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and you're talking about building an infrastructure that is, um, you know, it's akin to a, a, a festival because uh, yep. it, it requires all of that same infrastructure. What's the ballpark number for that? So 
The second you try to do something like that within the city, at least the city of Chicago, but probably most cities, it's going to be six figures. Certainly the stage is expensive and that can be really variable. But then you also have to think about fencing, tent vendors, porta potties, security, site production and stage production, ticket scanners, you know, hospitality. It's sort of, yeah, yeah, yep. just it starts to add up. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to do the math on it, on the revenue side, let's say you could sell tickets for $50 and you've got a 1,000 person capacity that that does not add up to six figures. It's exactly half that. So uh, <laughs> how to make it financially viable is uh, that's a pretty tough nut to crack. But as an abstract idea, as a way to kind of spread people out and have an actual concert experience, I really like the idea in theory. I think we've seen, we've obviously been paying very close attention, but it's been interesting to see the kind of range of reaction to the the mandates that have been put into place. You know, we've seen some artists who perform despite their the warnings. We saw that kind of now famous Travis McCready show in Arkansas where the mm. government literally had to put a cease and desist on the show. In terms of the concert, there will be a cease and desist order that will be issued by the Department of Health uh, directing that that uh, concert not take place, which is an official legal uh, order and directive that will go out. So I'm wondering if there are any events that have happened in the past six months that you're looking to as what not to do for sure, and then what has seemed interesting or possibly viable going forward. There's, there's a really interesting dichotomy between two very similar events that had two very different outcomes. So one would be the Chainsmokers doing a drive-in in the Hamptons in mm -hmm. outside of New York. Mm -hmm. I've never been to the Hamptons, but I, by reputation, <laughs> I, I know it to be like a very high-end... I read about it in The Great Gatsby. Uh, <laughs> and so it sounded like, you know, The Great Gatsby hired uh, the Chainsmokers <laughs> to do a drive-in <laughs> event in East Egg. And... Uh, you know, they encourage people to get out of their cars, supposedly. And so everyone kind of rushed to the front of the stage. And it was, you know, it's kind of everything that you, you know, kind of stereotype about, like, entitled people in the Hamptons. In this video, it looks hardly pandemic safe with no social distancing, with Governor Cuomo sounding off. It was a gross violation of common sense. The town of Southampton is going to have a problem. I don't know how they approved that permit. I, that definitely reverberated around the, the live music community of mm -hmm. like, okay, here's your first example of like things gone south. <laughs> um, but this past weekend, uh, Jeff Tweedy did a show at a drive-in outside of Chicago uh, in McHenry, Illinois. And um, it seems to have gone really well. And it seems difficult to parse because they on, the pa on paper, those two events are the same thing. I have to wonder with the fact that huge gatherings can't happen in the same way that they used to, do we feel like there's some sort of decentralization or return to indie or kind of back to roots organizing among the live music community that could be ultimately positive? This is hypothetically speaking five mm -hmm. years down the line, but because mm -hmm. so much power has been stripped away from the live nations, their venues can't hold the people that they once did. I'm curious about any thoughts there. 
Well, you know, when you were talking about this, I was just thinking about how communities on the margins have always been renegade, right? Like queer people in particular have been gathering, whether it's from from the ball scene to the disco, um, queer punk scene. I think that at least for us, that is such a huge part of our culture and our history. Of course, from a business perspective, where I always start thinking is like, all right, especially in cities like cities like Chicago, maybe smaller communities, they can get away with this a little bit more. Whereas in a city like Chicago, you're going to get slapped with that fine, or you're going to have to get those permits. And pre-COVID, what it took to get those permits, to get those permissions, the money and the money and money and how classist, if I'm just being right. really honest, that hospitality right. yeah. and entertainment industries are. And so it just mm-hmm. has to be said, like, we have to look at this in the big picture. And I think also in this week, we're feeling that a lot with the justice system. It's like these right. systems were built to support certain people and they were built to work in a certain way. And we are realizing how many industries are not sustainable for the future that, that many of us want to have. Now, on the other side of that is that you have communities that have been gathering in their own spaces, that have been finding alternative ways of supporting each other. You know, shows in living rooms and in basements have been happening for decades, right? Right. Um, Every good musical movement came from that. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and I don't want to simplify that either to be like, wow, how, how, how precious this is that we're seeing people functioning and doing this. They're also doing it for survival, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's really important that we zoom, zoom out and start to thinking and be brave around imagining how things could look different because it shouldn't have to be on the marginalized communities to be able to shore that support. We should be thinking of how these larger industries and institutions can do that for these communities. And I am encouraged to see how much of that is happening. And I think what it's also showing is that it's not that hard. So I love seeing all these things that are popping up and all this innovation. And I'm just really hoping that we can start to think about applying that to our larger ecosystems Totally. And to kind of come full circle here, we started by talking about what you would be doing this time of year if there wasn't coronavirus and if this was 2019 and everything was fine. So what does the next month or two actually look like for both of you? What are you guys thinking about in terms of what events might look like this winter? What's been interesting is we've been able to string together a few different things in the last I guess in like a eight week period here. So kind of thinking short term, you know, we did this thing with Goose Island where we had Whitney on a flatbed truck driving around the city and and (laughs) going to kind of the notable patio bars around the city and just playing one song and going. And it was weird because we were, we were trying to think of ways to not draw a crowd um, versus, (laughs) which is obviously the complete inverse of anything that we've ever done. Um, just imagining a Whitney conga line of cars driving through. There were a lot of bikes who ended up following us. Um, yeah, never got out of control, but you know, we had security there just in case and all these Mm -hmm. little kind of things. We've got some stuff to keep us busy, but outdoors is the only way to do music in COVID era. And You think about like the crowd that would go to the empty bottle. They do there. That's kind of like the famous indie venue in Chicago or one of the most famous, I would say. And they do this thing in March called music frozen dancing. Yeah. That mm -hmm. is, it's kind of a play on like the words that are on their awning outside their building. 
And the whole idea is they, they build a stage, they do a block party and it's freezing cold. Usually there's like what, uh, what Chicagoans would call a wintry mix coming down, which is like some kind of sleet snow combination. And it's, it's like generally unpleasant, but we all go out and do it anyways. And so I, I guess I have some hope for some moments like that here and there. I think this winter, now we are six months experienced with COVID, right? Whereas when we got into this in March, we had no familiarity or experience. So we have to remember that we do have some of that and that when we go into this winter, we can take some of that knowledge and experience with us. I mean, when this all happened, I think about like my, my greatest examples, like the drag community. I mean, the drag king and queens and performers were like, so on that shit. They, I, I remember tuning in for a show and I was like, so do you all just become like video editors? I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> and they got on Twitch and they figured it out. And, you know, just thinking about how much people are using the tools that they have with their own creativity and backdrops and things around their house and are getting more sophisticated with these tools. I mean, it is a lot of pressure. And I think for artists and producers, you're like, oh, wow, now I have to learn this whole other thing. And that on a, on a, on a hard day that can feel really daunting, but I'm hoping that we start to see a little bit more regularity. It's something we can count on. And right. I'm hoping to see like some, you know, really great innovation out of that. And I have no doubts that we will see that. Yeah. Um, well, thank you both so much, seriously, for your time and for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you're feeling nostalgic for live music, I highly recommend our Best of Pitchfork Music Festival film. It features archival footage of LCD Sound System, Mitski, Run the Jewels, Robin, and so many more. You can watch it on Pitchfork's YouTube channel. And if you need some more music to help you get by right now, give us a call at 917-524-7371. Leave us a voicemail, and Pitchfork's music critics will try to recommend you something new. Again, that number is 917-524-7371. We'll play a few of your messages and suggest some songs on an upcoming episode. The Pitchfork Review is hosted by me, Pooja Patel. Special thanks to Kristen Kaza and Adam Kreffman for coming on the episode. You can follow Kristen on Instagram at Kristen Kaza and me on Twitter at Sinari. You can follow Pitchfork on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pitchfork. This episode was produced by Caitlin Pierce and Ben Montoya. It was edited by Todd Whitney and Andy Cush. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Our original music is by Andrew Epen of Basement Crafts. This episode was mixed and scored by Ben Montoya. Special thanks to Amy Phillips and Julie Shen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. You can also send an email to podcast at pitchfork.com with any feedback. Thanks for listening and see you next week. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. 
who her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with the romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.